As Adam said, the first reading is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And now Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the women, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You'll certainly not die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you so much, Sean. Wonderful. Um, as I've said already, we are going through the Living Free uh, series uh, together. And this evening, we're focusing on the original design and uh, the fall, as you've probably been able to work out from the front of your sheets. Uh, we will build on what we were thinking about last week. If you remember, we were thinking about the fact that there is more going on in the world than we can see, uh, and the realities of the spiritual realms around us, as well as the natural uh, realms. I'm just going to cough. It's a natural cough. Um, <laughs> uh, I weren't meant to say last week that my absolute favorite piece of scripture, if there were to be, uh, is Ephesians 1 verses 18 to 21. Uh, when I'm a vicar of my own church, I, I suspect, unless the Lord tells me otherwise, uh, that this will form at least some part of my uh, ministry in that church. Uh, it is my prayer for myself, uh, as well as Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Uh, it is my prayer for you, uh, both through this evening and also for the whole of this course. And so I'm going to pray this prayer over us uh, now before we look at this scripture from Genesis together. So let's pray. So I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Lord, I do pray that this evening you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart that we would know the hope you've called us to and we would see something of the glorious inheritance that we have and the power that we have in you and through you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm really grateful uh, to Sean for having read uh, the uh, scripture from Genesis for us this evening. In fact, uh, if we'd had more time, I'd have quite liked uh, to have had her read the whole of Genesis 1 through uh, to 3, not just because I think Sean is fantastic at reading. Uh, she uh, is a newsreader in real life uh, outside of here, so one of the reasons why she's uh, particularly good at public speaking. But uh, uh, actually, the whole of Genesis 1 to 3 teaches us something um, about original design uh, and why we no longer see original design at work uh, around us. The verses that I chose from chapter one there talk to us about the way that God designed humanity to be. We were designed to rule. We were designed to have authority uh, and we were designed in perfect relationship with God. We move on to Genesis 3 and we see the fall and the consequences of that fall. We see the breaking of that relationship with God through the fall. I've shared uh, this analogy before. Forgive me if you've heard it before, but it's a good one. Jess and I um, have had the pleasure of living in a number of houses uh, over the last uh, few years. And each time we've moved into one, our garden has looked a little bit like this uh, picture, hopefully, there's, there we are, it's a bit like uh, this, very overgrown in need of an awful lot of uh, work. 
Interestingly, uh, the Bishop of Coventry spoke uh, um, about three years ago, I heard him speak, and shared that his garden, when he moved into the Bishop's Palace in Coventry, looked exactly uh, the same as well. What was interesting is that when uh, myself and Jesse's dad began to do some of the work in this garden, uh, in the bishop's case, when the gardener began to do some of the work in his garden, what we discovered was that underneath all of these overgrown bushes and trees and weeds were intricately designed details, beautiful borders. There was a water feature in one of our gardens that had been long since lost and forgotten, Uh, gorgeous potted plants and and, uh, beautiful borders and lovely laid lawns. Uh, It was the same in the Bishop of Coventry's case as well. His gardener, perhaps bravely, said to him, the problem that you have here is that this garden was designed by a genius but has been cared for by fools. Perhaps dangerous in the bishop's case, but actually the analogy that there is there between God's original design for us and the care that we have given it is a striking one, I think. I look at this passage in Genesis 3 and I often think about the fact uh, that actually it is so relevant for us today. It talks to us about the devil's tactics which he uses right now and in today. They haven't changed in the thousands of years since this, this, this passage was written. We see here that the devil tempts people to doubt God's word We saw in verse 1, did God really say that? The devil tempts us to doubt God's word. How often are we tempted to doubt what's written in God's word, I wonder? The devil tempts uh, Eve to doubt God's goodness. Uh, You must not, did he really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Is that good? Tempts us to doubt God's goodness. The devil tempts us to doubt God's truthfulness. You will not certainly die. And the devil tempts us to doubt God's otherness. You will become like God. I have yet to think of a sin or a a, a sin that does not relate back in some way to one of those four. Think about financial mismanagement, an easy one to think about. If somebody's tempted into financial mismanagement, they're doubting God's goodness, his provision that he will provide otherwise. They're doubting God's word, what it says uh, in there, his truthfulness, his otherness perhaps as well. All sin relates back to this original sin that we see in Genesis 3. And we also see the effects of this sin, the effects of this disobedience. We see shame where they hide themselves, they cover themselves in the fig leaves. We see fear, they hide in the garden for they're afraid. They see blame, it was the woman that did it. It was the serpent that did it. And we see judgment. If we go on, I've written the verses there, the rest of Genesis 3 for you. But we see the consequences of that sin as well. The the devil's main piece of work in the world is to tempt us to disobey 
God, the devil's main piece of work in the world is to tempt us to disobey God. That verse from 1 Samuel, for rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, if our lives, if our world look a little bit like this overgrown garden, then Jesus comes perhaps as the master gardener, comes back to restore the original design that God had for us. We see this a couple of times, a number of times in scripture. I've put a couple there on the top of your sheets for you. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Since death came through a man, through Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, through the ministry and life and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says this himself in Luke's gospel. Uh, we see, um, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which had been lost. That which has been lost. Uh, the word in the Greek there, which we translate as that, is very clearly that. Elsewhere in scriptures, um, Jesus says he came to seek and to save those who have been lost. Here he says very clearly that which has been lost. Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. He came to restore our original design, the way that God had originally designed us to be. He also came to destroy uh, the works of the devil. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. We talked about this last week, the difference. We're in that time of difference between D-Day and V-E Day or V-J Day. The war is won, the victory is won, but there are still battles going on until it is ended. It is certain, but but, uh, there are still battles to be done until Jesus returns. Jesus also came to take away the consequence of sin, took the curse from us. These verses from Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now we enter into this freedom, we know what it is to be restored to this original design through repentance of what we have done, of our past, of turn, and we turn away from darkness and we turn to light as, as Rachel did earlier as she gave her promises for baptism. Repent and believe the good news. Those famous verses uh, elsewhere in the Gospels as well, but Mark 1 written on your sheets there. And we are to live both in Christ and to know Christ living in us. Uh, I've got a couple of verses there. Paul writes that we uh, live in Christ. He uses the word in Christ 86 times in his letters. He uses the words in him a number of more times. It's something he really wanted to grasp hold of, that we live in Christ. But we're also told that Christ lives in us. I brought my uh, trusty sponge and water again. Um, I used this last week. Uh, it's, it's a good illustration for today as well. Today, the sponge represents uh, us, me, you, individuals, person, person A. Is, this is the sponge Christian. Water represents God. Now, the question is, uh, now I've squeezed the sponge a lot. Is the sponge in the water or is the water in the sponge? question both correct yeah yes another answer 
<laughs> we both live in Christ, and Christ lives in us. Unlike the sponge, there isn't a little bit of us that doesn't uh, live in the sponge and float on the top. Uh, it's, uh, all, all analogies fall down somewhere, unfortunately, especially when you get those cheap sponges. Um, we both live in Christ, and Christ lives in us. This was brought home to me most clearly uh, by Stuart, who's coming next week, uh, telling me about someone that came to his church. This person had in the past, was now a Christian, had in the past uh, been involved in the occult and had been trained in the occult to see things going on in the spiritual realms. And he said uh, he could always tell when there was a Christian because they literally carried a light inside them in the spiritual realms. But he said that 99% of Christians that he saw in the spiritual realms walked around hunched over the light, hiding it, not knowing necessarily that it was there. And he said just occasionally he would walk past a Christian who stood tall and whose light shone into the area around them. It was those people, he said, that they would cross the road in order to avoid. I want to be a Christian who stands tall and whose light is not covered by me hiding or hunching over it, but who brings light, Jesus' light, into this world. Now, to know this, uh, we need to know what it is uh, that we are called to, and we're to do something about it. Uh, one of my favorite stories, again, you may have heard me tell this before, is about these two guys. Uh, I think there's a picture of them. Two, uh, we've got Zolt and Andy. We've got Zolt and Giza, probably. There we are. This is Zolt and Giza Palladi, uh, who uh, for a long time uh, lived in a cave in I've forgotten. It begins with a B. It's in Eastern Europe. Uh, where am I going? Bulgaria. Bulgaria? I possibly. It doesn't matter. Eastern Europe. Type in Zoltan Giza Palladi and Google. They come up. Uh, it's not necessarily the actual cave. Uh, it's just an image uh, from Google. They lived in a cave. They had no money. They collected scrap metal each week in order to pay uh, for beans to eat. That was their existence as uh, Zoltan Palladi, uh, Giza Palladi. One day somebody uh, came to find them, a lady came to find them and said, please could I take a blood sample from you uh, because I think someone's died recently that you might be related to. Uh, and why not? So they did. So she went off, she came back. And it turned out that their maternal grandmother, so their mother's mother, had passed away. They'd never met her. Her mother had fallen out with her earlier in their life. Um, they'd never met her. They'd, she passed away and left them their, their entire four billion pound fortune. Four billion pounds overnight for Zolt and uh, Giza Palladi. Now, how ridiculous would we consider them to be if they put that in a bank uh, knew it was there, but did nothing about it, went back to the cave, continued to eat beans, and continued to scrap metal in order to pay for it. We would think them ridiculous. The inheritance that we have from God, saints, the things that God has called us to, the people that God has called us to be, is far greater than four billion pounds. Trust me. God's inheritance is far greater and yet so often we go back to living in our caves, to collecting scrap metal and to eating beans. We, we will only grasp the identity that we have as children of God if we truly believe who it is that we are called to be uh, in Christ. 
I wonder where it is that you find your identity from normally. I wonder if you can think about that for a moment. We get so many conflicting things coming at us uh, nowadays, don't we, that affect our identity. Just this week, um, I was thinking about uh, the fact that before I um, uh, was accepted to go for training to be a vicar, I had to fill in a very long form. And one of the questions was, briefly describe yourself uh, and your character and personality. And I wrote, um, and my first two sentences were, depending how much credence you place on these, I am an ESFP, I am a yellow-green in the colour scales chart, and my key strengths are harmony, adaptability, restoration, connectedness, and consistency. All strength-finding tools, all good and helpful things, particularly in teamworks, in understanding how teams work and how we work alongside each other, but that is not my identity. It may speak to you a little bit about how I work and how I operate, but that is not where my identity is found. I wish I could go back and rewrite uh, that paragraph. It might be that other people and the interactions that we have with other people um, have shaped our identity. I'll talk about where we can get an idea of who it is God has created us to be in a moment with the birthright cards. One of the other things that we offer, or we're beginning to offer in this church, is what we call original design prayer. This is where um, people who have been listening to God for a little while will sit down opposite you and they'll say, God, when you made this person, what are the distinctive things that you called them to do or to be in the world? What are the things, what are the particular anointings that you have given this person that is sat opposite you, opposite me, um, uh, to do in this world. I've had a number of these, I've been blessed with a number of these prayer appointments uh, over the years. Uh, now, about 20 uh, years ago now, oh, it's not quite that long ago, it feels like it is, no, about 15 years ago, uh, I had just started university in Lancaster, and uh, I wasn't as cool and trendy as I am now, I'm sure you'll find that hard uh, to believe, uh, and uh, I-, I went along to the Christian Union there, and uh, somebody said, uh, we're going to trial out some new worship leaders, if you've never led worship before, and you want to come and have a go, uh, come along, and you can have a go at leading a band in worship and see how you do. Now, I got grade eight piano and singing. I've been teaching both for a bit of time, so I'm a competent piano player and a competent singer. And I thought, well, maybe I could use those gifts in leading worship. So I went along, uh, having never done it before, uh, and uh, was put in front of a band who I'd never met and said, right, get on with it, uh, have a go. Uh, and I, was, I didn't do a particularly good job, as you might expect, having not really done very, uh, having done it before. I mean, we got through two songs together uh, and it sounded like worship music to me. Uh, anyway, at the end of it, I didn't get on particularly well with the person responsible for worship in the CU. His name was Jeremy, and uh, not our Jeremy. Uh, uh, it's a lot older than our Jeremy. Uh, were you even, yeah, you were born, it's okay. Um, his name was Jeremy. I didn't get on with him particularly well. And he said to me, Adam, that was pretty pants. Uh, the weren't the words he used, but, you know, close to that. Um, you shouldn't do that again. You, you're not called to this at all. Uh, thanks very much for trying, but don't do it. And you know what? For 10 years nearly, I didn't do that again at all. Never went near leading people in sung worship. Occasionally played the organ in a church nearby for weddings and things because that's different. Uh, But never led uh, sung worship from a piano particularly. And I sat in my first original design appointment uh, about five, six, maybe seven years ago now. Opposite three people I'd never met before. Knew nothing about me. 
uh, knew nothing about my life in Lancaster for many years before that. Uh, and they listened to the Lord. And um, the first person, when they were feeding back to me, said, Adam, I think somebody said something to you in the past which is significantly affecting your original design. It's significantly stopping you from living in the way that God has created you to be. And, you know, I've done some psychology over the years, and I thought it was probably true, almost certainly true. Somebody said something to me. I wonder what it is. Uh, I'll have a think about that, and I'll pray about that. The second person almost interrupted them and said, hmm, as you said that, the Lord prompted me to share one thing that I'd written down, uh, which was that God has created you to lead others in sung worship. Uh, and I went, ah, no, you've got this wrong here. Because uh, let me tell you about something that had happened 10 years previously. It had gone terribly. Somebody told me I should never do it again. The third person, before I had a chance to say those words, the third person said, hmm, as you're saying that, the Lord's prompting me. I've just written down the name Jeremy. Does that mean anything to you with the other things? They knew what he had said. They knew his name. And they knew how it had interacted with my original design. God speaks to his children. And he longs for us to know the things that he has called us to do. Uh, I do now lead some worship, not as often as I would like to. We're blessed with some wonderful worship leaders here, uh, and so I do other things uh, as well. But I still do do that, and I do it in my own time as well. It's part of who God has designed uh, me to be, and it will continue to be. And I wonder if we spend more time focusing our identity on what other people have said to us, what other people have said about us, rather than what God says about us, either specifically or about us all as his children. It might be that an experience that something has happened to you in your life has led you to change the way that you think away from what God thinks about you. Uh, you may remember this newspaper article, Andy, I think uh, we've got uh, from the Telegraph. Andy, any joy? There we go. Uh, this is Justin Welby, our Archbishop, about, I think, two years ago, maybe three years ago. Uh, it was revealed that the man who he had believed all of his life uh, had been his father uh, was not actually his biological father. It was, uh, it was someone else. Now, you might, that was not his doing, he had nothing to do with it, and you might expect that that might cause problems uh, with his identity, might cause problems with who he considered himself to be. Uh, his response the day this article uh, uh, was published uh, was this, there is no existential crisis, no resentment, my identity is as it was, founded in who I am in Christ. One of the many reasons why I'm certain that Justin Welby is uh, the best man to be, the Archbishop of Canterbury, for this time. He knows who he is in Christ. He is a son of the living God. Our experiences shouldn't dictate our identity. It shouldn't be those things that discern, determine who we are. What's in here determines who we are. What God says to us, his words over, about us, are what who determines who we are. The last thing that may well, uh, for this evening anyway, have an effect on our identity is our memory. I've put this picture of an elephant in uh, your uh, sheets. Um, you may know that baby elephants are, are uh, trained in some parts of the world uh, not to um, uh, escape by being 
tied with a rope, or a chain in fact, uh, as baby elephants, to a massive immovable stake uh, in the ground. Now looking at that picture, you'd see that the elephant could easily remove that stake from the ground, but from a baby, they learn that any resistance on their back leg means there's no point in trying any harder, and so they can be pinned to one place with just the smallest of stakes and the smallest pieces of rope. Uh, more locally, you might know Jonathan G has got a dog called Dudley. Uh, uh, it's a Labrador. Uh, in their kitchen, they have a piece of board that's about that high off the floor that goes into the, into the, into the lounge. As a puppy, Dudley tried to get over that piece of board and couldn't and failed. Dudley is now huge. He's a massive Labrador, could easily step over that board. But because as a puppy, he tried and failed, his learned behavior was that he could no longer do that and so he doesn't try. I wonder if there are things that we have uh, tried in the past, have failed at, and they then form part of our identity. Many of you will know John Wimber, famous uh, Christian leader, preacher, had a, a huge healing ministry, prayed for thousands upon thousands of people and who he saw healed. He prayed for over a hundred people before he saw the first person he prayed for healed. I wonder how many of us have prayed for 100 people to be healed. Or maybe we've tried after four or five goes and stopped and gone, on. this isn't something that God has called me to. So we need to know, we need to rediscover who it is that God calls us to be. Now, as I say, there are some unique things that each and every one of us will be called to, uh, and it will take time for us to discern what they are. I'm still discerning them. But there are things that we're each called, that it is true of each and every one of us. And that's where these Christian birthright cards uh, come in. You'll see that there are a number of statements there, all taken from Scripture. Uh, all are absolutely true of every single person in the room. You can look at each of these, and each of these is true of you. As you read down this list, if one or two of them are harder for you to read, and you go, well, I'm not sure about that, hear me, it is true about each and every one. It is our birthright as Christians, each and every one of these. Your homework, you'll see on the back uh, this week, is to take these home uh, and to read through them uh, and to, to stop at the ones that you struggle with. You might just get to the first one. I know the first time I read it, I did. Uh, you may get slightly further down the list. Uh, wherever it is, pray through them and thank God that this is what he says about you. Not the things that we read uh, in online surveys, not the things that other people say about us, not the experiences that we have, not the memories that we have. Scripture, God's word, is where we need to find our identity. And once we have that, we need to believe it. We need to walk in it. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Read scripture and live on his word for us. Agree with it, declare it aloud. Another thing which um, has been prophetically discerned specifically for me uh, is that I have been designed to teach complex truths in simple ways. That's the phrase that's been said to me about six or seven times by different people. You may disagree with them if you do, a bit rude. Um, but uh, take it up with God because that's what he says. Um, uh, but it's important for us 
uh, to declare these truths aloud. So a few moments ago when you guys were chatting to each other, I went into the vestry and I prayed and I thanked God that that's something he's called me to and I declared that truth aloud over myself and into uh, the spiritual realms before I preached this evening. And we need to not listen uh, to our flesh, uh, the thoughts that we might have that may be negative, that might turn us away uh, from these things, insignificant thoughts that we may have. And we're not to listen to the devil, either, or the worker, the evil one. If when you're reading these, uh, you think to yourself, no, that's not true of me, that is not God. God does not condemn. God builds and restores and brings life. It is either uh, a thought of your own, something of the flesh, or it is potentially the temptation of the devil to believe something else. You have authority over those thoughts. Um, very simply, you can, use, uh, you can use a prayer that says, I bind you in the name of Jesus. I bind that thought in the name of Jesus, and I choose to believe what God says about me. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 18 says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We're going to talk about that verse uh, in a little bit more detail uh, in a few weeks' time and understand our authority more in a few weeks' time. But you do have authority as a believer in Christ to bind up the work of the evil one, bind up the flesh, and believe the truth of what God says about you. And the last thing, uh, for this, morning, this evening at least, is to persevere with this. Would that it would be that this was easy, that you just learn it tonight and then for the rest of your life this never, you never have another thought that is uh, of a temptation or another thing that goes wrong or you never think badly of yourself again and you only believe the identity that God has of you. Would that that were true? Just this morning I said something uh, from the front here about myself which isn't true uh, and I apologise for that uh, and I will apologise for that I'm sure in the future. It's easy for us to sleep into old habits of behavior, particularly, I think, in this culture where self-deprecation gets us into humor. But actually, God calls us his children. I'm a child of God. That's what the one that says at the very top on the right there. We are the salt of the earth. Read through these things. These are things that we need to declare over ourselves, over each other as well. I think I've spoken enough uh, for this evening. I'm going to pray for us. Perhaps the band will come back. Will you stand uh, with me as I do so?